It's been an active few weeks since you've last heard our voices, so let's catch you up on what's been going on. In our interview, we talked to Fred Knipe, CEO of CyberGRX, who made some news this week of his own. The bears are back, the cops are arresting people, headphones are forging certificates. I swear it'll all make sense by the time we're finished. Let's go. Welcome to Securiosity for November 30th. I am Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel. Greg, it seems the last seven to 10 days have fit in with the rest of the year. Big InfoSec story after big InfoSec story. No days off, neither for the criminals or the cops chasing them. Nobody's stopped for one second, but hey, we're glad to write about it. Later in this episode, we talked to Fred Knight, the CEO of CyberGRX, about his company identifies and manages their third-party risk in order to remediate weak points before they become a major liability. CyberGRX was in the news this week, which makes this interview extremely timely. But before we get to that, let's get to all of the craziness of the week that was. So after a year of hibernating, Cozy Bear is back with a spear phishing campaign targeting the U.S. military, defense contractors, and other sectors. According to FireEye Research, the campaign uses an email lore purporting to be from a State Department official in an effort to weaponize a Windows shortcut file. Additionally, researchers from Palo Alto Networks intercepted a malicious email campaign from Cozy Bear targeting government organizations in Europe, North America, and a former Soviet state. And another notorious Russian hacking group tried to exploit the latest flurry of Brexit-related news in order to spread malware to unsuspecting victims, according to a report from Accenture released earlier this week. APT28, which Accenture refers to as Snake Mackerel, now they have another (laughs) animal name on top of their long list of uh, monikers, Uh, APT28 used a malware-laced Microsoft Word document that appeared to be about the United Kingdom's planned separation from the European Union to try breaching a wide variety of targeted systems. The document contains the first-stage malware system that established a backdoor on a victim system and collects information about the host. Jen, it seems like the Russians aren't very deterred in their influence operations. No, they're not. And I think that we should work on giving them more offensive names. Yeah, Cozy Bear and Snake Mackerel. The, the Snake Mackerel thing just really, random. I, I didn't Seems even random. know that Snake Mackerel was a type of fish. But hey, here we are, um, uh, establishing uh, animal uh, genus to uh, <laughs> Russian hackers. Wild. Um Anyway, yeah, the this goes back to the deterrence thing that we've been talking about. Russia seems to be still very active and still very much on their game when it comes to mixing influence operations and using those influence operations in order to drive further into Western systems, be it through spear phishing or be it through email spoofing or be it through destructive attacks. Um, You know, it reminds me of what we've seen from North Korea. North Korea doesn't care that the U.S. Justice Department is out there uh, indicting their hackers. Russia doesn't care either. Russia doesn't care that you know, these companies like FireEye and Accenture and everybody else is spending all this time uh, conducting research to point to tools that they have been using now for two, three, four years. But, you know, I mean, heads up, they're going to be active. They're going to stay active because this is what they like to do. And this week shows that, yeah, they're they're going to keep using the Western governments to push their malware as they see fit. I mean, let's be honest, somebody's high-fiving in someone's basement in Russia right now over their name that they got named. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I would like to see some underground forums where they are making fun of the names that we have all given them because oh, yeah. they are totally open to be made fun of. <laughs> so the identity of a notorious figure in the hacker underworld has come to light. Did a new research from third intelligence firm Recorded Future, Tessa88, a dark web account, known for selling access to large databases set stolen in high-profile breaches, is tied to Russian national Maxim Donikov. Through a mix of previous research and information on the open web, Recorded Future was able to piece together a profile that tied the account back to Donikov. There are some particularly interesting connections to the LinkedIn breach. However, it's not entirely certain how everything fits together with regards to that particular breach. Greg, tell us more about this since you wrote the story. So... Recorded Future has been following, I shouldn't say Recorded Future, a researcher at Recorded Future has been following this Tessa88 account 
for some time, and this account was tied to the trade of information that was taken from LinkedIn and MySpace and some other yeah. big profile hacks. Uh, it doesn't look like this character was responsible for the actual technical part of the breach, but he was more like an information broker, sitting on the dark web and going, hey, database for sale, give me some Bitcoin and I'll get you into it. Um, what was really interesting about this story was the way that it was pieced together that this individual was in fact a Russian national because there was some chatter for a while that this person was female as well. Uh, there was it was thought that this was a Russian female, but it turns out Just to be of the name. Well, it was the the Tessa part of it, and I think that he's had conversations with other researchers and other infosec journalists and has referred to himself as herself. Got it. And so it was a mix of saying, well, this might be a male, this might be a female, j just to cloud the identity. Anyway, the way this came about was a lot of open source intelligence being pieced together by the Recorded Future researcher who found little clues on YouTube or on Reddit's image platform and some other accounts and some other... Um, Jabber, OTR, encrypted messaging accounts, they were just these very, very small needles in these bigger haystacks, and yet these researchers pieced it all together and found that it was this Maxim Donakov, Donakov um, guy who was just, like you were saying, the Russian basement hackers. I mean, this guy right. came from the criminal underworld, um, was known to frequent the dark web forums, was also known to frequent car forums as well, and it was part of his pictures of cars on social media that led to him being uh, doxxed, if you will, awesome. um, by like Record of Future. Um, I, I think there's a Mitsubishi Lancer oh, in there okay. as, as well. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if there were other cars. I remember uh, Lancer sticks out. Um, only because, I hey, I used to drive a Lancer myself. So okay. it, we have something in common there. However, I'm not selling information on the dark web. Don't plan to do so <laughs> anytime soon. But so we talked about how this might be clued into the LinkedIn breach. And it's funny that you say that because there's been some other news about that LinkedIn case. Uh, speaking of that trial, it's been delayed uh, because the suspect, Yevgeny Nikulin, will now be forced to undergo a psychiatric evaluation. Nikulin, also a Russian national, is scheduled to be transferred to a psychiatric facility after he refused to meet with a psychiatrist for a previously scheduled evaluation according to court documents. Uh, the defense supports the decision, citing that Nikulin's refusal to discuss the case with his own legal counsel. Nikulin's lawyer, Arkady Buke, said the defense would ask the Department of Justice to send Nikulin to Russia in the event he is deemed unfit to stand trial. Jen, that last part sticks out. It sounds like the Russians found a loophole here. Wait, wait, wait. You're saying that if I get arrested for something and I decide I'm not going to talk to my lawyer, um, I might get off on the whole thing and get... I don't. If I was from Russia, yeah, and and that That's is amazing. so. Let's backtrack a little bit about this case and and piece together some stuff. Nikulin is going through the trial process. It's in the pretrial mm -hmm. process in Northern California, but he has been obstinate and stubborn and refuses to cooperate with anybody, including his own defense. I mean, we I we have reporters that talk to the lawyer, Arkady. And, um, yeah, he's kind of stunned that there is just no conversation happening whatsoever about the case. It's funny. He told us, if you read our story, there's a, a, a quote from Arkady where he says he'll, he'll talk. He'll talk about the weather. He'll talk about sports. He'll talk about anything other but his case, which – oh, okay. That's, I don't know. That's, Isn't that like uh, yeah. Spine 101? Yeah. Uh, well, and we know it's been publicly reported that Nikulin was visited by people from the Russian consulate without his lawyer very early on after he was extradited. It does not Guilty. take a genius to piece together the fact that maybe he was told, hey, shut up about this case yeah. and maybe we'll get you out of it. Because remember, the Russians were very, very adamant when he was picked up in Europe that he was not to be extradited to the U.S. He, they, The Russians wanted him to be extradited to Russia sure. for what they say is crimes committed in Russia. 
that didn't happen. So now I think that there is a bit of gamesmanship going on where the Russian consulate may have said, hey, uh, do this and we'll see what we can do about getting you home. Now, I don't know that. There are no facts to that. I'm just saying it. there's a logic – there's a very logical – timeline here to follow to see that that's where things are headed well i imagine there's a lot of um, russian hackers out there watching this news and seeing how they're maybe we'll get out of being in trouble in the u.s going forward uh, and uh, i don't think it's also just hackers i think it's wow. the russian government overall as well so to another apt group apt 32 the prominent Vietnam-linked hacking group is hijacking several Southeast Asian websites in a watering hole campaign uncovered by ESET. Researchers say that APT32, also known as Ocean Lotus, is using about 21 different websites to deliver malware that extracts detailed information about victim systems. The campaign appears to be sophisticated and deliberate, with APT32 using a unique domain and server for each watering hole and only sending additional payloads to specific victims. It's not clear how successful the campaign has been as the group is using advanced encryption and invasion methods to stay out of sight, but yet ESET still found them and says many of the websites are still serving malicious scripts despite being notified. Jen, pretty brazen to keep serving those websites despite the notification, right? I mean, look, if you're doing bad things, you probably just don't care. I mean, <laughs> and, right? and, and, I mean, and, oh well. Yeah, uh, this APT is no different than the other APTs we've been talking about. And apparently about. if we extradite them to the United States and they just don't speak, we're going to send them back anyway, so what's the <laughs> right. difference? Well, I don't think that this group is necessarily committing crimes against U.S. entities. I know we've reported on APT 32 before. Mm -hmm. They've been very interested in what's been going on in the Philippines and has wrecked a bunch of stuff in the Philippines and some stuff tied to uh, Duterte. But at the same time, going back to the brazen part, yeah, it seems like these groups just don't care. If they have the backing of the nation state um, that they're yeah. residing in, they're just going to keep doing what they're doing. Just because it's not Iran or China or North Korea here, even Vietnam, even these groups, they just don't care. And they're just going to keep doing what they're doing, even if these private companies are saying, hey, everybody, look. And they go, yeah, look. Okay, we'll do it again. Yikes. Yeah, so interesting. So a botnet spreading the Emotet banking trojan is getting more adept and making convincing phishing tools, according to researchers from GoFence. The campaign is apparently using a new email scraping feature to lift templates stolen from infected victims, then uses those to upgrade its lures with a credible aura of financial institutions. The emails, absorbed by GoFence, are made to look like banking statements and payment authorizations, among other things. But the emails led to malicious documents that are able to then drop more backdoors and malware. The campaign appears to be after credentials to various financial accounts, according to Cofence. Greg, we haven't really talked about Emotet a lot. What can you tell us about it? That I know a lot of security professionals have been concentrating on it because it's becoming more and more prevalent. I mean, look at this story that Cofence found. I mean... Cofence, we, we know, mm -hmm. Aaron, Aaron, they yeah. do a lot of things tied to email protection. And the fact that it's just an email protection company that is spending so much time on this shows that this is just one company. I want to say there's 10 or 12 companies that are focusing on this from a ton of different angles. Like it's not just email security companies that are worried about Emotet. It's the bigger companies overall and financial institutions, of course. But this is really dangerous because of the amount of care that gets put in to building on top of the malware framework. I mean, this is, it's like startup innovation being applied to cyber criminals. I mean, that's really what this is. It's it's just a framework that's being used to build new hacking tools and ones that are targeted at financial institutions. So I really haven't heard about Emotet a lot in the news. Could you sort of point me to um, like a big breach that this was tied to? So I don't know that this was tied to any big breach, but what I think that this focuses on and what Emotet is really responsible for is think about all the business email compromises that we talk about. Think about account holders that are fished or spearfished okay. or whale. When they are getting those emails now, it's probably being 
served to them. Emotet is probably being served to them in those emails. Okay. So that's why this Got is it. dangerous. This is being used to pry into accounts in order to steal money. Um, so I'm sure that the financial institutions are really, really watching for this, and they're really, really interested in research like Cofence's research, but this is dangerous because it keeps growing, it's financially focused, and it's not really focused so much on the banking infrastructure as much as it is as targeting the individuals that had the keys to those accounts. Got it. So U.S. prosecutors have filed a 13-count cybercrime indictment against the suspected orchestrators of a scheme to defraud internet advertisers out of tens of millions of dollars. The group ran a purported advertising network known as MethBot that used 1,900 computer servers to load ads on more than 5,000 fabricated websites. Defendants also leased some 650,000 IP addresses to falsify billions of visits to those fake websites, charging real companies for ads that never really existed. They used this method to reap roughly $7 million for legitimate advertisers, while a second group used a botnet to bilk businesses out of more than $29 million. Alexander Zhukov, a 38-year-old Russian citizen, shocker, serves as the CEO <laughs> of the MethBot Group, and he's accused of directing millions in funds to accounts all over the world. So, Jen, I want to focus on a different angle to this because we've been talking about cyber criminals and Russian citizens yeah. now for a while. Have you worked with any companies that could combat something like this? Because ad fraud has seemingly been around for a while, and it seems like a piece of the cybersecurity puzzle you don't hear about from a startup perspective. So... So that's kind of interesting. We've actually interviewed um, two people on this podcast um, that are in my portfolio that I think um, I think one aired, has aired and one hasn't that sort of combat this. So you've got um, Distill that goes after bots. Okay. Um, so it, it basically destroys all the bad bots out there, which, you know, certainly leads to this problem. And then also um, our friends in Vegas, um, NSA, you know, certainly go after ad fraud um, and try to combat that as well. So, yeah, I mean, it just seems like ad fraud has been around for a while. And while those companies, while, yeah, Distill and NSA do their things, it just seems like this happens again and again and again. Like, it it doesn't seem like it's very pervasive, but I feel like every two or three years we get a story like this where there's just millions in fraudulent ads that – are out there and the money's just flowing and it's just a matter of trying to find that money. It just seems like there should be more technological ways to try to combat this and I don't necessarily see them out there. I mean, do you click on ads? Because I always find that I don't typically will click on anything. I will just type in the URL of where I want to go. Right. Um, As far as banner ads are concerned, no, I don't click on banner ads. I mean, a lot of people have ad blockers out there, which leads me to believe that the red flags on this type of stuff should be more apparent because when you start to see all of these websites, I mean, 5,000 fabricated websites, 650,000 IP addresses, and if it's all automated, you would think that if you're seeing a a big bunch of traffic tied to a legitimate ad, I mean, the technology is out there to flag stuff like that. There's, There's behavioral analytic stuff out there all over the place. Why isn't any of that tied to ad fraud? I don't know. Um, But I do know that, you know, when you do a Google search for something, like maybe a hotel, um, you know, those first two two or three entries typically are ads. Right. I'm certainly guilty of clicking on one of them, thinking I'm clicking on, like, Marriott.com. But in reality, I'm (laughs) clicking on... (laughs) Good example. We'll talk talk soon. Um, You know, but in reality, I'm probably clicking on something that's not Marriott, that's a third-party... Um, allowing me to book a hotel room. Right. Yeah, no, the the ad tech world is just so convoluted, and I wonder if we will ever see a technological solution to make sure stuff like this didn't happen. Quick aside, though, Alexander Zhukov, 38-year-old Russian citizen, represented by the same lawyer who is representing our boy Yevgeny Nikulin, who we talked about earlier. Don't say anything, Alex. Don't say anything. Right. Yeah, no, it's... our, our Katie gets all of these Russian criminals uh, as far as representation is concerned. It's a fascinating story. The other big indictment, two Iranian citizens have been hit with U.S. federal indictments in connection with the Sam Sam ransomware. The Department of Justice alleges that the pair launched ransomware attacks on more than 200 victims over the past three years, collecting more than $6 million in Bitcoin. 
and causing more than 30 million in damages. Sam Sam has victimized several municipalities, government agencies, and hospitals in high-profile attacks. The indictment pins the attack um, on the city of Atlanta, the Port of San Diego, the Colorado Department of Taxation, six healthcare organizations, and many others um, on the two Iranians. The defendants' whereabouts are unclear, but authorities say the charges will make it harder for them to keep carrying out attacks. Really? I can't imagine that's true. Um, but okay. Um, so, Greg, there wasn't a historic angle to this. What exactly is that? So, the historic angle is the fact that this is the first indictment that focused on uh, a ransomware. Okay. Uh, an actual ransomware attack. I mean, we could talk about uh, the charges for not pet share or want to cry, but they actually were, in fact, not ransomware. So uh, they were destructive in nature. This was Sam Sam actually asked for money. They got some money back. Think about what happened in Atlanta. Atlanta's the big one here that um, yeah. that everybody should come to mind. Atlanta was pretty crippled by this and uh, got hit pretty hard. So uh, the Department of Justice has shown that with this, they're going to go after the bigger ransomware culprits and whether it is the public sector, the private sector, they're going to be focused on trying to get whoever it is that is responsible for this. Now, do I think that these two gentlemen that were charged will ever see the inside of a courtroom? Of course not. But then again, we, we've seen that the, the Russians are at least dragged into the courtroom. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're ever going to be I, I committed to, to say, their crime. Yeah. I have to say, though, if we don't figure out a way to convict Nikulin um, and we send him back to Russia, I think we're just um, showing Russia that we are not serious about making them pay for stuff like this. Yeah. I mean, it, this is a, a, another bullet point in the long list of arguments that we can argue about as to whether th the deterrence is actually working here. Um, but look, that aside, the DOJ has to do something, especially when we're talking about cities being attacked here. I mean, this is not just a, a, a corporate entity. We're right. talking about cities that need to function as far as, you know, courtrooms and uh, sanitation and uh, getting parking tickets paid and checks that need to go out. Um, I mean, cities need to operate. So if it's Atlanta, Newark, the port of San Diego, I mean, these cities are going to look to the federal government to help them where they can, not just in necessarily from the DHS perspective, getting back online, but trying to go after them legally. So to an entirely different story, Two applications developed by German electronics company Sennheiser contain vulnerabilities that could make it possible for hackers to forge digital certificates and impersonate legitimate websites. The apps, which are HeadSetup and HeadSetup Pro, installed certificates on users' computers, then failed to secure the key, according to a vulnerability report published Wednesday by the consulting firm Socorvo. Hackers could decrypt the key and use the certificate as a means of digital authentication to monitor victims' traffic and launch attacks. <laughs> the flaws resemble Lenovo's infamous Superfish incident in which software pre-installed on consumer laptops injected advertisements into search results and hacked encrypted SSL and TLS web connections. I'm sure a lot of you remember that whole ordeal. In this case, Sennheiser said it's aware of the issue and has removed the two apps from its available downloads while it works on a fix. Jen, your new headphones are now problematic from a security perspective. There are so many pink slips being given out right now. <laughs> wow. Um great you know um apparently everything's vulnerable and and we should think that right We're, we read that article about pacemakers at one point too i so. don't understand why a <laughs> headphone driver <laughs> which is what i believe this is right. would even have the need to install digital certificates anyway which leads me like uh, was this on purpose? No, not that this was on purpose from the company's perspective. Like, is this a supply chain thing? That's what comes to mind. Like, right. did, did somebody hijack the app development cycle to say, okay, we're going to do this this way? Because we have Sennheiser headphones in studio with us right now. I mean, I've never seen these apps, but I, I this is not something I even think about when I go to buy a pair of studio right. headphones. Yeah. Like, or are you yeah. kidding me? Like, I, I don't know even the highest 
savvy security people that would think that they need to be on the lookout for this stuff. No, this is just not. wild that this is a thing that we need to watch out for. But uh, that's what leads me to believe that it's got to be a supply chain thing. And we talk a little bit more about supply chain third-party risk in our interview coming up. Right. British and Dutch authorities are fining Uber a combined $1.17 million for a 2016 data breach in which 57 million users' personal data was exposed. That's not enough money for 57 million people. The UK's Information Commissioner's Office is issuing a fine of £385,000, said that a series of avoidable data security flaws led to the exposure of personal data of 2.7 million riders and 82,000 drivers in the country. Similarly, the Dutch Data Protection Authority issued a fine of 600,000 euros, saying that the breach affected 174,000 Dutch citizens. Uber agreed earlier this year to pay $148 million across the 50 states and Washington, D.C. The penalty was the largest among attorney general settlements in privacy cases. Greg, the money keeps flowing on this one. Is this the end? Uh, Hopefully. I bet Uber would like it to be the end because they want to put this behind them. Um, Yeah, you're right. This is a drop in the bucket for a company like Uber. So this is something that happened pre-GDPR, and the European countries are going to try to max out those laws as best they can. But again, we're coming to the end of this, and GDPR is now in effect, and you're going to start to see those numbers inflate wildly. So 1.17 million, it is, it's nothing. They just, I don't know, stopped working on autonomous cars for a month, maybe, and rerouted that money somewhere else. Um, But Again, drop in the bucket. They'll they'll move on, and um, I'm sure they're happy to move on. So speaking of breaches, it has been a week for breaches. <laughs> Let's wrap all of these together. Earlier this week, Dell detected and thwarted unauthorized activity on its network that was an attempt to extract customer names, email addresses, and hashed passwords from Dell.com. Dell said it had contacted law enforcement about the incident and hired a cybersecurity firm to do an independent investigation. Of course they did because that's standard at this point. Another one, a data breach involving open source Elasticsearch exposed the personal information of nearly 57 million people. The incident occurred because Elasticsearch tools were misconfigured for public access, according to cybersecurity organization Hacken. That company found the exposed data as part of an audit using the search engine Shodan. The breach exposed 73 gigs of data as early as November 14th, including the names, employers, job titles, emails, addresses, phone numbers, and IP addresses of 56 million U.S. residents. Then, Dunkin' Donuts this week has alerted customers to a data breach that may impact those who signed up to DD Parks, which is the company's loyalty program. Fash Casual restaurant chain learned on Halloween that thieves obtained username and password information belonging to Dunkin' customers via a credential stuffing incident. Credential stuffing increasingly in the news as thieves' preferred method for acquiring stolen data. Some companies contend with an average of 3.5 billion malicious login attempts every month, according to Akamai. And then as we were getting ready to tape this podcast, the big one, Marriott announced Friday morning, that information contained in a Starwood Hotels database was compromised, potentially affecting 500 million guests. Marriott received an alert on September 8th from a security tool indicating an outsider was trying to access Starwood's guest reservation database. That alert was enough for the company to consult outside security experts who ultimately determined that thieves have been inside the database for roughly four years. Wow. (laughs) For roughly 327 million of the 500 million of guests impacted Stolen information includes name, mailing address, passport number, and a ton of travel information. Jen, take your pick. Which one's the worst here? Passport numbers and birth dates for the win. The, the Marriott, <laughs> I mean, I mean, look, I, I'm not going to victim shame here. This stuff clearly happens as as the four incidents over the past 10 days Okay, have but shown. I am going to victim shame because September 8th. Yeah, so, yeah, that is, that, that is worth noting that... And so we were just talking about GDPR. Mm -hmm. This is going to be the focal point for GDPR in that the company had an alert on September 8th that there was some type of potential breach. And I think that that turn of phrase is going to be what the Data Protection Commissions in Europe 
eventually focus on? Yes. What does a potential breach, is there any leeway as far as what GDPR dictates when it comes to notification? Because they could have gotten, they, they're probably going to say, we got this notification of a potential breach. The potential breach means that we don't know that a breach actually occurred. So are you going to hit us for that? Uh, I don't know. I, 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 I get the sense I don't that... know, but if you hire someone on September 8th, which they should have, um, October 8th should have been the notification date. There, there's no reason it took them more than a month to figure out for four years they've been compromised. Yeah, that the thieves have been inside for roughly four years. That's going to be... Uh, uh, that's not great. Yeah. Not great. Not and, great. And, and it's, it's probably... passport numbers not, and birth dates and, and everything else. Passport numbers to me is just like... Ridiculous. That is bad, 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 bad that that has leaked. Um, but some of these other... Yeah, compared to some <laughs> of these other ones, I mean, the Elasticsearch one is definitely bad just due yes, to yeah. the number of things but that that almost gets back to it's in the same realm as the s3 buckets it was a data exposure part as well um if that's, i'm down elastic search i'm yeah. uh, pretty happy about the marriott news yeah I'm be honest yeah with you. right right uh, dunkin donuts too dunkin donuts too this was the thursday's story i mean this is – it's a credential stuffing thing, and yeah. that's something that you need to be worried about. And just – this gets to the consumer's perspective as well because the credential stuffing is possible by the fact that everybody out there reuses passwords. Stop reusing passwords. Stop. <laughs> Stop. Just because you're doing yourself a service by just using different passwords everywhere else. Um, it was the company's loyalty program too, so it's not like there are – you know, th there's no payment information it's it's other information sure. and that's that's bad but we're not talking we're, with dunkin donuts we're not talking credit card information we're, we're talking just but but okay but pii but that, that's username yeah. and and uh loyalty numbers i guess on on how many yeah turbo if, shots i bought but if i'm a dd perks member i'm probably also a member of like 10 other things and I probably use the same username and password for every single thing. So right, that's right. Yeah, just uh, again, all of this. I mean, just, I don't, but I'm guessing the average person does. Right. This all of this just ropes into the fact that you should get a password manager. Absolutely. At, at the very least, so that way you can just forget about it and move on. But yeah, the Marriott thing. I feel like we're going to be talking about the Marriott thing we're the same way we're, yeah. we talk about Target, Home Depot, Sony. OPM. This is a, a, a bullet point that we're going to be talking about for a while, and I'm really, really interested to see how this is handled with GDPR. I know we've talked about oh, yeah. Facebook and how Facebook, with everything that they've been going through, is ripe for a GDPR case, but I think this one's a little more cut and dry because this is a breach. With Facebook, there's a lot more that goes there. Well, okay, we're we talking privacy-wise. We're talking privacy policies. With this Marriott thing, no, we're talking like this is Passport straight numbers. breach. We're talking straight breach. Yes. A lot of information out there, and we have definitive timelines as far as when hackers were in, when the company was notified, and when the public was notified as well. This is going to be a pretty cut and dry GDPR case moving forward, and it's going to set the groundwork for Absolutely. how GDPR works in the future. I can't wait to see the, the numbers on those fines. So, okay, on to our interview with Fred from CyberGRX. The Denver-based firm runs an exchange whereby its customers, larger enterprises, and the smaller firms they do business with share data meant to help in assessing and managing cyber risk. The company says it unites third parties and their customers in the fight against cyber threats, and their ability to mitigate supply chain risk improves as more entities join CyberGX's exchange. And they announced a funding round this week. Let's hear all about it. All right, joining us right now is Fred Knight, the CEO of CyberGRX, all the way out in Denver. Fred, thanks for joining us today. Good morning. So you've had a busy week, but uh, we want to, and we'll talk about the news that you made this week a little bit later. But first, we want to know, how did you get started in security, and what were some of your formative experiences that made you want to move into the security space? Sure. I um, interestingly have a pretty non-conventional background for um, a cyber startup CEO. 
the majority of my background is actually in uh, investing, consulting, etc. Um, I was uh, worked for a couple of private equity funds and McKinsey for some years. I eventually landed at a firm called Bridgewater Associates, uh, based up in Westport, Connecticut, and um, I was put in charge of the uh, compliance and security departments uh, for several years. And it really was one of those, um, okay, Fred, we think you're capable of running this. Look, step in and see what you can do. And um, kind of a crash course in understanding security. And that was kind of staff, physical, and cybersecurity. It was uh, incredible to really understand how that worked and um, also some of the things that we needed to do as an organization. And I was kind of addicted right there just to recognize the trends we are in today of how uh, we're increasingly digital economy and uh, interconnected in that way and how important cybersecurity would be. And um, some of the fundamentals fall back to some of the you know, the, the basics of key business decisions, but then there's also so much evolving that um, I haven't looked back. So with Thanksgiving and Black Friday behind us and Christmas right around the corner, what is your biggest piece of advice for large retail stores? Sure. Um, you know, recognizing this is a, a happy time for most retailers as they're kind of getting into the black and this is a, the biggest shopping season. You know, I, I think I'm probably biased in this given that we focus on third-party risk, but, um, you know, one of the biggest issues we've seen is, you know, over 50% of breaches that people are seeing, particularly in the retail space, are through a third party. Um, and so it's recognizing you're now collecting a ton of customer information, customer data. What are you doing with it? What kind of analytics are you running on that? Is that outsourced to someone? How are you pulling it through through different point of sale systems, et cetera? And uh, you really are, you know, your customers are trusting you with that information. How are you handling it? And what are you doing with it today? Um, we have seen the, the, the full gamut, and there are many companies out there that truly don't even know. And I think that's one of the issues that's going to be more and more exploited. And this is this is also, as I said, a kind of happy time for retailers. It's also a happy time for the hacking community because there's so much transaction activity. It's a time to really get in and uh, and take advantage of all the activity. So let's back up for a, a minute and talk a little bit about how CyberGRX works with these retail organizations in order to help them manage third-party risk when it comes to cybersecurity. So talk to us a little bit about CyberGRX and the concentration that you have. Sure. And I think the, the, the simple way of putting CyberGRX helps companies evaluate and manage the risks that exist outside their kind of direct environment. So when they're sharing confidential information with someone, if that's going to an analytics tool to help uh, identify customer trends or some of that sort, or um, managing just-in-time inventory, um, or if it happens to be uh, sending you know, payroll data or some of that sort, or if you're allowing kind of direct connections into your environment. The, um, the increase in kind of interconnectivity of companies today is just massive compared to where they were called 10 years ago in that um, you really are kind of what we call a digital ecosystem of providers, service providers, et cetera. And um, what's unfortunately happened is companies haven't kept pace with their security focus. It's very much been, how do I protect myself? But they're not focusing on where does my data go and how do I manage it throughout that broader ecosystem? What CyberGRX does is really helps them evaluate that at scale. Um, what people have done historically is a very um, paper-based annual risk assessment where they'll say, tell me about your security. Okay, that gives me confidence. I'll talk to you in a year. Um, that obviously, as you know, in, in this environment doesn't really hold and it's really hard to scale. And so what CyberGRX is, it's a third-party cyber risk exchange. And what that means is we do a high-quality, thorough assessment where we even validate the responses people provide us, house that data centrally, and allow it to be used multiple times. We then overlay analytic tools and models for people to then leverage that information to identify pockets of risk or where trends might be, uh, to allow them to really gain confidence in not just the security of their own environment, but then the broader ecosystem in which they operate. Okay. And so you had said, you know, you were previously head of compliance and security at another company. Talk to me about the trade-offs that you're seeing there when it comes to being compliant and definitely being secure, because that is something that is talked about a lot within the cybersecurity community, and the two don't always meet eye to eye. So talk to me about that balance that you see and how things are changing around that conversation. Yeah, no, and, and it's, uh, it's one of my favorite quotes from one of our earliest customers um, who basically said, look, I'm going to put it to you straight. Compliance does not equal security. Simple as that. Uh, however, being secure 
typically means you're compliant. I say typically because uh, some of the compliance regulations are sometimes uh, uh, kind of outdated and such. Um, but no, you're, you're absolutely right. Unfortunately, the uh, evolution of the way people think about third party has been really a compliance-oriented mindset of this is what my regulators asked me to do. I'm required to have a third party risk program or I'm under some regulatory standard, therefore I will do this to check that box. And that, that is how this industry started to grow. Um, that's kind of rewinding about a decade ago or so. Um, and you'll see, you know, in the financial services space, uh, particularly the OCC, and then kind of healthcare with HIPAA requirements or retail with PCI compliance, are the people who really have focused on third party historically. Um, that being said, you know, compliance does not equal security. For a, um, a regulatory compliance um, standard to, to be updated, it's a cycle of years of, you know, risks have to be identified, they have to be validated, they have to be, has to be put out for comment and then validated and such. And so, you know, you're really falling behind if all you do is focus on meeting compliance standards. I think um, some of the best practitioners out there recognized that a while ago. Most are recognizing that today. And that's part of why we built our platform um, on, a, on a risk management mindset, not a compliance mindset. We basically threw out all the regulatory standards and spoke with leading practitioners about how do you make a risk-based decision, regardless of what your, your regulator might say. Let's make sure we're collecting the information that informs that. And then we'll map it back to regulatory standards to make sure you're meeting those. But let's make sure we're covering the information that's necessary. The, um, the reason that's so important, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, is the vast majority of breaches that are out there today are coming through third parties. Hackers have recognized that, okay, people focus on securing their house, but they're sending all their information to the neighbor next door, I'll just go there. And um, if you're just going through a compliant checkbox exercise and not truly thinking about this as an extension of your environment, then you're leaving yourself exposed. Hmm. So how do you think sort of regulation will change over the next five to 10 years? Do you think so compliance will catch up with truly being secure? Um, that's a great question. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. It's, uh, I think it's pretty hard to kind of catch up. And, and unfortunately, the phrase truly being secure is uh, somewhat of a misnomer. Yeah. There really is no such thing. Uh, right. And it's a, it's a matter of how quickly does compliance catch up. What you're seeing is, um, I would say, unfortunately, a, a more of a, a negative impact in that you're, you're seeing people jumping to react and a, just a complete um, proliferation of standards that are out there, ranging from different states coming out with their reviews, different countries, different regulatory bodies. And um, so we have several of our customers who are saying, yeah, I'm required to answer to literally nine to 10 different regulatory standards um, for their compliance needs. And so that actually just complicates the process and, um, and makes people really focusing their time on paperwork of making sure they're meeting all these disparate standards versus how do I truly manage risk appropriately. One of the things that we've focused on, and interestingly, we have some, um, some people kind of been in the industry for years, are kind of uh, private investors in, in CyberGRX, is you know, for this to really take off, it has to be a true understanding of risk and a market-driven approach. And, um, and that's really the true motivator. No, no one is, is really getting up, and well, maybe some people are, but no, few people are getting up really excited about meeting their compliance standard today. But if I actually um, know that if I'm not doing the right things here, here, and here, that my customers will not be satisfied, I will lose revenue, that will motivate any company out there. And that's how you're gonna drive really an adoption of increased or better security approaches. And so uh, part of getting that information out there and educating buyers to know of the importance of the cybersecurity of the, the companies that they're buying from and to hold them to that standard from a uh, economic standpoint, I think it's going to be the true driver. The um, part of what we've done on our platform is obviously facilitate that and then allow a company who's then been assessed on our platform to then understand how that would then meet different regulatory standards so that they can stay in compliance. So kind of circling back to your question, I'm not sure that the regulatory standard and such will ever truly catch up. It's always going to be a step or two behind. And the better practitioners are always going to be ahead of that because they're the ones who truly appreciate how the market's evolving and are more dynamic in the way that they change their approach. So talking about how organizations can never be truly secure and looking at it from a risk management perspective, I'm interested to hear how you think the supply chain risk factors into this. How do you see the supply chain working into a risk management conversation 
and helping organizations grow or encourage healthier cybersecurity practices. Right, so um, one is, it, it's silly to say that you shouldn't rely on a supply chain or a broader ecosystem today. Like it's just, it's almost impossible to operate a business today. Right, of course. Uh, and so you, you, you need to factor in, okay, for, for me as a company to grow, I need to be thinking about what am I good at? Let me focus on those core competencies and let me figure out what I can outsource and leverage the expertise of others. And that's what's really led to you know massive economic growth. That's great. That being said, you really need to focus on, okay, what's the level of security, comfort, or confidence I have in those companies? And uh, how am I be going to be able to manage that? Um, and then the, the, the piece of this is there's also a recognition that it's not necessarily now great, I can stamp, I'm secure, moving on. It's a matter of kind of probability and reducing that as much as possible. That's what risk management is. And so saying, okay, first and foremost, I need to know what that risk is. I need to know what I'm taking on. If I'm evaluating, you know, five different payroll providers, it's important for me to then say, well, what is the security baseline that exists at each one of these companies? And am I uh, taking on a greater burden by picking this one company, even if their offering may be slightly better? And so that's something that needs to factor into your uh, decision criteria earlier on. It doesn't necessarily mean you don't use them. It just means you need to be aware of that and potentially think about the mitigating controls that you would put in place in your own environment to accommodate that. And so the first and foremost is information awareness. Um, and then it's a matter now of what am I willing to take on? What is that risk as I move forward as a business? And you know, as we, we help companies think through if they have called 100 or 1,000 and 10,000 third parties is let me look through some kind of weighting of who should I really be focused on and pay attention to? And um, we use kind of inherent risk rating tools, which are really like, do they come on site? Do they have access to your network? Do you give them login credentials? Do you give them devices, et cetera? These are things that can help you identify, okay, I'm opening myself up more and more to this company. I should therefore hold them to a higher security standard. And it's a matter of kind of then factoring that in. And then there are others who are not. So, um, you know, it's your cleaning service, or it happens to be your um, you know, cafeteria provider, some of that sort. They're probably, okay, I'm okay with them actually not having the best cybersecurity. And it's a matter of then weighting that appropriately and understanding what your risk tolerance is. Uh, I say that lightly, but it's, you know, this is something that people have not always talked about at the, you know, the management or board level. Uh -huh. And it is important to establish, okay, how am I going to communicate to this organization the risk tolerance they're willing to take? And it's not the, um, you know, the, the, the FUD, uh, let me scare you about everyone's going to die and all this, you know, cyber breach, et cetera, type of thing. It's right. a matter of, hey, we're, we have a risk here. We can make these decisions that will reduce that risk, or we can use this provider that might reduce that risk with some business impact. And that's a decision that you need to make at a corporate level. So we saw that you announced a round of Series C funding this week. Um, how do you plan to use that to grow your business um, and to benefit um, organizations? Sure, no, it's, uh, it's exciting for us. We, um, you know, this was a really good year for us in terms of establishing our, our exchange um, and kind of the just massive customer growth in that sense. And a lot of that uh, money will, will go to actually just uh, continuing that growth trajectory and uh, further sales and marketing um, growth. And then obviously just underlying, we've built out a customer success team and we're building out you know, a whole variety of new products and features that you know, are enhancing our, uh, our engineering team to do so. But the big thing for us is, as I mentioned that with the you know, CyberGRX is an exchange, we're not just a, um, a tool for someone to do third-party risk assessments. It's actually a um, kind of a community that enables sharing of information. The baseline of that is cyber risk information. But once a company is assessed on our platform, the, um, the efficiency gain comes from them being able to share that multiple times. You know, we have customer or, or companies assessed on our platform who were literally assessed by their customers in the thousands of times last year. That means someone is responding to a thousand individual requests from companies asking them for details and information around their cyber program. We're helping them elim uh, eliminate a lot of that. And at the same time, we're also opening up channels of communication between companies and their third parties. One of the things that became readily apparent to us is no one really wants to just go judge their third parties and say, okay, you guys are good, you guys are bad. That what they really want to do is enable that ecosystem on which they provide to improve and get better. And, and so doing, they get stronger and they get safer. It's kind of, that's your first line of defense, right? Let's make sure that they're stronger. And so what we've put in a lot of tools and capabilities to enable people to not just understand what that risk is, but then also to share information and help their peers or their customers or their third parties grow. And that's what's really taken off and been pretty exciting. 
So what do you do when a third party has a really low or a really high risk score and um, but that company really wants to use a third party? How do you help that third party um, get more secure? Sure. And, and so when when someone is assessed on our platform, um, the information is shared both ways, right? It's a uh, that company also now has access to all that data. And we'll walk through. Here's what we assessed. Here are the controls that you have or don't have. And then our risk models will highlight based on the current threat environment and the kind of breach decompositions that we've used to drive that model, here are the controls that we think are the highest risk to you, company X. And that is a, a very powerful thing for them to focus on because it then guides the conversation with the customer who will say, okay, instead of here's the 25 things that um, are gaps that I want you to fix, it's actually okay, here's the 25, but these four are really important to us. These are the highest risk. So let's focus on achieving those together and let's figure out how to get you to get there. Um, we found that a lot of companies, you know, you take big organizations, Salesforce, Workday, Microsoft, et cetera, you know, they've been assessed countless times. They have you know, huge budgets dedicated to understanding where their risk is. And that's pretty straightforward in the cyber GRX assessment of them typically just really validates what, what they're um, already knew. We've had a lot of companies who are kind of more mid-tier who the cyber GRX assessment is, in some cases, the first time they've ever done a cyber risk assessment. And they're asking, what's data loss prevention? We didn't even know that. And that's actually a really helpful opportunity for them to recognize how important that is in the environment in which they play. And they have that data available to go and address that and then communicate that back up through our platform to their customers of how they've made you know, changes or, or uh, improve that over a call three, six, or whatever month uh, timeframe. I'm wondering if you could talk about what makes some of these companies have a higher risk when it comes to their cybersecurity. Uh, is it a lack of using encryption inside their networks? Is it an audit that finds that they have public clouds that aren't covered? Is it the fact that they don't have a security executive in place. I, I'm wondering what goes into your scoring apparatus that would show that a third party does run a pretty high risk and could be detrimental to a company looking to use services inside their network. Sure. And and all three of the things you just mentioned there all play a role, right? Those are all important factors. If you've got a dedicated security uh, practitioner that speaks to the maturity of the program and, and the importance it has in the organization. So obviously that's influential. Um, if you have, if you're using public cloud or, or other cloud environments, do you recognize your requirements to actually configure them correctly? It's remarkable how many times you see uh, Amazon S3 buckets left exposed because someone didn't know how to, to actually configure them appropriately, et cetera. And so are you managing that? There, there are a variety of these pieces. The, the, the best analogy for or comparable to our assessment is kind of the NIST 853 standard that really does walk through here are the, the major components of what a cybersecurity program should be. And then it's been enhanced through our conversations with our design partners. Um, but it really just walks through the fundamentals of, of, of what is in place in terms of policies, procedures, settings, et cetera, um, to run a cybersecurity program. The, if I come back to what actually are the greatest drivers, um, unfortunately, it's not very sexy in that sense. You know, everyone loves to talk about the new cool, you know, anomalous behavior detection or other type things that are AI driven and somehow use the blockchain. Um, but it's really actually down to the basics. Um, I think I've seen some statistics that say something around 90% of reported breaches last year could have been blocked by basic patching. Um, and that's, that is a key thing here. What is your patching cadence? How are you managing that? How are you getting ahead of um, those types of issues? Um, the other is actually phishing. <laughs> it's really, um, I hate to say it, it's pretty straightforward in that you know, 80 plus percent of breaches start with a, with a fish. And so how are you educating your employees, training them, et cetera? When we come back down to kind of key things that can really drive kind of quick uh, ROI for investment for a smaller company, it's making sure that they have a solid patching program in place and understanding and managing phishing uh, to make sure their employee base understands what that is and having some controls in place to block potential uh, issues there. Uh, so that's, that's, you know, if I would try to summarize it quickly, but we obviously have, you know, hundreds of other questions or areas of focus to, to dig into as programs get much more sophisticated uh, around, you know, broader configurations and access management, et cetera. You talked about it a little bit, but I'm wondering uh, a little more when it comes to the companies asking for information and 
how you see this third-party risk management marketplace evolving. I'm wondering how many companies are you coming across that are coming across information they find on your exchange and going, wow, I, I never really thought about it from this way. Um, interestingly, quite a few um, and, 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 and in two ways. One is if you think about the risk management process, the first and foremost element is, is kind of understanding your inherent risk. And so that's kind of what's the risk that exists before you factor in the controls that exist at, at the organizations. And that's really is kind of how exposed are you? How important is this company to you? Uh, as you think about um, the, you know, evaluating the breadth of the third parties you might work with. That may sound like a, a straightforward concept, but when you now are a you know, large Fortune 100 company that has 20,000 third parties, it's actually pretty important to identify who you should be paying attention to. And some of the tools that we have that we've you know, worked with companies on, we've identified tens of, in some cases, hundreds of companies that they're like, they basically said, well, why, oh, now I see, wow, hadn't, we'd never even considered them before. And so you've just kind of helped them identify gaps. This is kind of like the target HVAC vendor who right. know, no one really paid attention to except for the fact that they have login credentials to run diagnostics on the uh, HVAC machines at their, at their stores, and therefore they have network access. And now they just popped up to a different level that otherwise might not have been surfaced. So that's the first kind of quote-unquote surprise. Um, and I think that's been really helpful for a lot of our customers just to identify who they should be paying attention to. And then once they go through the assessment process, it's also then identifying um, the kind of the, the, the risks that, that reside or exist afterwards, a residual risk. And one of the things that we found is as people will adopt or build out a third party program, they, um, the typical approach is to say, okay, we're, you know, we've never done this before, we'll start we'll start doing third-party risk assessments on all of our new vendors that come in and kind of run the process, and that's kind of a way to start to grow that population. And that's great, and it helps run through. The problem is you have a legacy set of third parties that you may have never done a risk assessment of who are intimately ingrained in your business processes. And so some of the companies that we've worked with who've gone back and looked at, you know, this is a company that's you know, mission critical for us. It drives something that if they went down, it would really knock us out turns out that that company actually has a, a whole variety of glaring holes that are leaving it pretty exposed. And, and it's not necessarily meant to be punitive, it's meant for them to be able to reach out and say, guys, if we're gonna continue this relationship, we need you to fix this stuff. And, that we're, and maybe they don't even know about it. And so it's enabling uh, companies to have that conversation. You gotta have, we have a large company that just came on our platform this past week that is now running a um, assessment program of their 800 largest um, legacy vendors. And just saying these are the ones that we've never done assessments of before, but we're uh, we're kind of scared of what that exposure might be. <laughs> I would imagine having 800 different companies or services tied into your own company would be kind of daunting. Absolutely. Yeah, well, it, it's interesting you, you say that. The that number is actually not as uh, atypical as you might think. There are companies out there who are their network or their web consists of, in some cases, a hundred thousand third parties. Whoa. Wow. Um, and so I'll just put it, and this is, this is an interesting thing that we, we learned is, you know, in our world today, you know, the people are using so many services that they may not even realize. CyberGRX is three years old, and we have just under 100 third parties that we leverage, ranging from recruiters to AWS to GitHub or whatever it happens, DocuSign, you name it. But at the same time, they're all areas where we may be sharing sensitive information, or if that went down, that creates an issue for us. And so we need to be cognizant of that. And that's just us. Think about every other company out there. And that's that's what's really been contributing to the growth of our exchange is everyone has third parties and everyone is being assessed. Many of our customers want assessments of our security. And thankfully, we can provide them the CyberGRX assessment of CyberGRX. But it's a, it's a matter of uh, really helping to understand that network and really grasping what that exposure might be. So we like to end these interviews on a random question. What is your favorite thing about Colorado or Denver, I should say? Oh, wow. Well, that, that's a long list. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm born and raised on the East Coast, and uh, I'll give you two. Uh, the first and foremost is I've spent the vast majority of my life with really humid summers, and uh, it's really nice not to be able to walk outside when it's 80 or 90 degrees and sunny and be perfectly comfortable in jeans and maybe even a, a sweatshirt. Uh, it's just a different concept here when you take the humidity out of the equation. 
And so that is a, uh, a wonderful thing. I get off the, uh, the plane in Newark or some of that sometimes. I'm like, oh, my God, what am I doing back here? <laughs> um, and so that's, uh, that's one thing. But the other, I think, is really just the outdoor nature of the culture here. My, uh, I have three kids, and you know, they're now getting into skiing and um, hiking, mountain biking, et cetera. And it's just neat to get out there and really escape. Um, it's wonderful just to spend a, an, an afternoon in the, on the weekends up in the mountains and just you know, step away from things for a while and clear your head. And it's, I've really seen kind of no better place than, uh, than Colorado to be able to do that. Fantastic. And I agree on the couple times that I've been to Denver. I can totally vouch for everything that you've said. So, uh, Fred, really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, thanks for your insights. Thanks, Fred. Great. It's my, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again to Fred. The supply chain seems to always be the elephant in the room when it comes to the way enterprises are handling cybersecurity. That's it for this week. I'm going to go see if I showed my passport to any of the Marriott properties recently. I, <laughs> I just everybody prepare for, for the incoming credit freezes, and new credit cards coming your way. In the meantime, we will talk to you next week. Everybody, as always, stay curious.